Establishing shot. That's me, Ted Barron, pretending to wear a mask, even though you should always wear a mask. Um, I am here in the Browning Cinema at the the Bartolo Performing Arts Center. That's where we are, (laughs) on the campus of the University of Notre Dame. Um, We are thrilled to be back, um, kind of, (laughs) because our our new semester has started. I am joined uh, by my wonderful colleague, uh, the one and only Ricky Herbst. Hello, Ricky. Uh, hello. <laughs> Ricky is, of course, as, as, as our longtime listeners know, he is the cinema program director for the cinema, uh, which is not, which he's not really doing a whole lot of that lately. <laughs> not so much. No, we're hanging out in the, the non-cinema cinema. Yeah. So, um, so as, as we've all been living through our period of quarantine, um, it's been, we've faced some challenges. Um, we, uh, are at a point where we've just started up our, uh, semester here at Notre Dame and we've had to kind of shut it down a little bit. <laughs> so we'll see by the time we get this out to all of you, maybe things will have changed again. I expect they will. Uh, we're kind of in a moving target situation where, um, classes have now gone online, um, supposedly for a two week period. We'll see if it goes beyond that. But uh, in the meantime, time we, capsule, time capsule. <laughs> we're 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 not supposed to timestamp these podcasts, but now they're evergreen. But yeah, but you but know, not what? really. <laughs> not, <laughs> not under the circumstances, all those rules are, have been thrown out because we thought it would be good to first of all get back together. Where you know, Ricky and I haven't even been able to be in the same room uh, for uh, you know for extended periods. Um, we have actually set up ourselves in the Browning Cinema with uh, plexiglass barriers, in case you're wondering why we're why we might not be wearing masks. We are sufficiently distant, um, so hopefully we're taking all the precautionary measures to uh, to prevent spread of uh, the dreaded COVID nineteen. Um, we just got yeah, we got Skinner boxes basically <laughs> <laughs> with a microphone as our only friends. And Kevin Chris manages is here with us recording, and he is also. Uh, secured in plexiglass, and ma- Kevin is actually masked, so he's a little better than the rest of us. Um, but you should all be wearing masks as much as possible, as much as you can, except maybe when you eat. Um, and even then, just try to find a way to shove your food through the sides. Um, we are going to talk about, so we're going to talk about uh, qu- life in quarantine, uh, but specifically um, some of the things that we've been watching uh during quarantine usually we we try to tell you what's coming up at the cinema there's not anything coming up at the cinema no we're we've transitioned to a victory garden (laughs) or victory classroom we've been put to a higher purpose during this moment right um so nothing is showing in the cinema we will be presenting some things via virtual cinema and you will, if you receive emails from the DeBarlow Foreign Arts Center, you will be kept abreast of those and some things that are coming down the line. But we'll let the semester get settled before staking out into those uncharted waters. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, in the meantime, uh, we are going to give you just some uh, insights into some things that we've been watching uh, since uh, everything kind of fell apart back in back in March, uh, very quickly, that I might add. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think our last podcast was just before that, it was because we did an Oscars podcast with uh, Mark Torma. Uh, oh, right. So mm-hmm. um, a lot's kind of happened since then. Which is now like a February, <laughs> like early <laughs> February, right? Uh, yeah, well, or, exactly. And now it's going to be, well. It, or, now it's we, a late April? Is it, is it moved back to late April? I believe so. I, I think that's probably going to to move again. Amidst my various obsess, obsessive uh, Wikipedia re, uh, searches, I was looking up the, I think it was the 19, oh, it was the 1988 Oscars broadcast because I was watching a little bit of Fatal Attraction on TV and I was curious <laughs> how, how it showed up at the Oscars. Um, but, that, but that broadcast was April 88. Um, so. Yeah, well, I always think of it as being the last week. The la- like, remember when it was like Sunday night in March or Monday night? In so it started. It used. To, oh no, it used to be Monday night. Yeah, it used yeah. to be Monday night, and then they moved because Woody Allen wouldn't go. Track on. meets, and my parents would <laughs> let me. Uh, I go to the track meet. They record the Oscars. They wouldn't give spoilers, and then I would watch it the next morning and not go to school. 
which is nice of them. Because I, I was like, if I go to school, it's going to be spoiled. Yeah, and that's they very were, generous. They were very generous. That's very they generous. were they were good with a sick note. <laughs> they were flexible. Oh, oh yeah, a lot of flexibility. That classroom was hybrid. <laughs> Hyper, you were testing out hybrid hybrid class forms. <laughs> yeah. Well a lot of a lot of shelter in place and watch watch live events before they'll be ruined. Um uh yeah. So thank you for that. <laughs> sure, sure. That's what quarantine is. Quarantine's a way to uh in our in our as we kind of dig through our own pasts as or as well as discovering new things, we we you know get we get brought back to those cheerful moments back when we didn't have to distance and mask and do all those good things. So although not cheer, I think routinely about how challenging this would be in the non-streaming era. Granted, Mm -hmm. you know, people persevere. I would have read more books. Yeah. But the sheer volume of movies I watch. Right. I I mean, sometimes it's like film festival levels, like five or six a day. Mm Mm-hmm. Other times it's seven or eight. (laughs) No, like it's always like, it's definitely one feature film a day. Yeah, it's. I it made me think of. It makes me think of. You know, just sort of past experiences. When I was in college, um, I managed our campus video store, and there was one spring break where I just decided to stay on campus, um, and I just basically like raided the video store and kind of holed up with all of the, you know, with all of these VHS tapes <laughs> for the week. Um, but then also, I, it makes me think of when my daughter was first first born. Uh, Blockbuster Video used to have a deal where you could rent like ten DVDs. At, at once right um right. And it was perfect for or it might have been like a precursor to like a monthly subscription yeah i think i remember like a five for five type like five films yeah. five days we definitely got Very up to 10 because <laughs> i remember having ten. maybe it, maybe we just doubled up the five but <laughs> right. uh, we had i just remember a huge stack of dvds when my daughter was an infant and we're stuck at home and we'd have you know, uh, like in-laws uh, coming through to to help take care of things. So, and this is two thousand one. That's two thousand. Yeah, that would have been two thousand one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, if I could remember anything from, I can't remember anything that was in those stacks because early days of child rearing um, tend to be a blur. Kevin can probably attest to that. Um, so, uh, anyway, so but now we're back into we're back to the streaming era where we just keep kind of finding. Um, interesting things. Um, so Ricky, let me turn to you first. And, uh, we don't have a guest today. It's just the two of us because we're not ready to have someone else kind of invade our, um, uh, our space. Uh, There's only so much plexiglass. That's right. That doesn't go <laughs> And so much, uh, yeah, protect, only so many protective measures. We don't have enough PPE here for it. So, um, so Ricky, why don't you, uh, start us off with one of your, uh, either discoveries or rediscoveries that you made during this time? Uh, So the first film I'll chat about, um, so I wanted to do what films I've seen the most. Because I'm at the point where I've (laughs) done multiple viewings of things. And I I just was going back through my notes, and the film that I've watched the most, uh, it's helped out by the fact it's a short, I believe it's um, 22 minutes, I think Mm -hmm. that's right. And I watched it seven times uh, as I'm helping someone write about it for a manuscript. And that film is Pure Difference. It screened in the Browning Cinema um, previously. I I saw this at a film festival a couple years ago, wrote to the director as I really admired the film. And we screened it in conjunction with a shorter film a shorter film, Hale County, This Morning, This Evening. Oh, right. Okay. And really odd pairing. But that's a short film. I think it's, you know, just over an hour or so. And with Pure Difference being 20 minutes, it made for a really interesting combination. And Pure Difference is an essay film. So I watched it again for the documentary film class I was teaching out at Westville Correctional Center, which seems like years ago which was shut down because of the pandemic, like many things. And I taught it in that setting. And it was interesting because I really didn't get feedback. You know, you kind of, those were lectures, you kind of throw them out and you don't necessarily hear back. It was a message in a bottle type 
mm-hmm. uh, lectures or almost like a correspondence course in some ways. Um, but uh, Pure Difference is 22 minutes and it's an essay film about uh, the fraught history of numbers. So it starts with a Margaret Thatcher quote. She is leading a rally to her constituents, um, to definitely she's to her base. And she's talking about how educators are ruining the world and how they've come up with this crazy idea of anti-racist mathematics, whatever that might be, she says with a lot of scorn. And this film then mixes kind of like, like, iMovie YouTube videos. Like, it looks like something that a group would put together for a class presentation Mm -hmm. and then put on YouTube. (laughs) And I mean that, I mean, it's very, it's knowing, it's knowing, Mm -hmm. it's very self-aware of it. Um, Mixed with corporate training videos. And I think that it's just kind of all the runoff from, like, the corporate educational experience and the videos that are created in that. Uh, and kind of the B footage that you would find in network news. And it puts these all together to tell the story of numbers and how they have an element to them that is uh, could be channeled for racist reasons and how and is really like a surface level introduction to like number theory through critical analysis. Does it suggest that numbers are kind of random or that they're much more deliberate? Uh, That they are very random. So the only thing that defines two is that it's not three. Mm -hmm. And three isn't two. So that's the pure difference between them. And so in that regard, there's no real difference between them. But at the same time, the all of the points within two and three are infinite. I mean, there's just a huge amount, well, maybe not technically infinite, but all of these numbers and things that can occur between them. Mm -hmm. And so numbers are always an approximation of the real, which then allows the essay film to come back and look at like, oh, like how are these corporate videos approximations of the real? And how are our essay films trying to get us to a place of knowledge or not? So it it becomes very quickly also a statement about documentary films in reality and our experience. And let me tell you, this has the Jill Godmillo seal of approval. <laughs> it's been called miraculous. Wow. Miraculous. <laughs> that is not a word that she would throw around very often. Yeah, it, I don't think so. Um, um, and it's just, it's so, uh, it's, it's great in that you have, it is, it has these moments of like awareness where you see like, oh, that's such like throwaway footage. And the narration has a tone that's almost like someone who sells like annuities or mm-hmm. you should Buy a Mercedes, but it's not John Hamm or whoever does that. That kind of soporific yet chirpy, mm-hmm. uh, like female narrator voice who leads you through it. And so it does feel very saccharine, but underneath it is this really great awareness that I never had um, about numbers and how they have been used invidiously and how they are both within and surrounding. So just fully enmeshed with uh, capitalism and some of the problems inherent to that. And it's just, it's super smart. And I don't think you can see it. (laughs) But if you Google pure difference, Byron Peters, uh, there might be a way. It might be a way to find it. Yeah, I was having trouble finding it when Sorry, you when you had picked buddy. it. But, um, I just whetted your appetite. Yeah, uh, that's but, okay. But if anything else, check out Byron Peters. Yeah, uh, his website, the work that he's doing. He's he writes a lot mm-hmm. uh, about various subjects in that kind of polymath way, and like his approach. So does, uh, does has it ever? Or do you know of any you know sort of response from? kind of the math world in relation to something like this and as he as he 
screen this in other contexts? No, you know, it's it's actually it's part of a a series too called okay. anti-racist uh, mathematics. Okay. Um, and I haven't. I I'm sure if I spoke to math mathematicians, mm-hmm. they go, "Yeah, we all know that." <laughs> you know, but the way it's packaged and the way it does have something to say about art and the creation of mm-hmm. learning, the transmission of learning via video, which is relevant nowadays, uh, it, it has a lot more to say than just like, "Hey, did you know this history of numbers?" Okay, so, and it's just it's I'll very clever. Out. It's great. Well, I would, yeah. I mean, I should definitely see it because mm-hmm. of. The work that I do with teaching documentary, and um, it sounds really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we showed it, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, people loved it. Okay, it was it was one of it was those rare movies where I get emails afterwards from undergrads. Not necessarily rare, but the volume where they're like, yeah. "That was really weird." That was good. Like, you should what put was it on that? Quibi. Yeah. <laughs> that would be. <laughs> Maybe they could start, you know, getting people to subscribe. There you go. So that, and then a shout out to one of the weirder um, double view, uh, like, you know, multiple viewings. I watched When a Stranger Calls Back. Which is? An early 90s made for Showtime. uh, Sequel to When a Stranger Calls. Right. Is that the the first and only sequel to it? I believe so. Okay. And then I believe they remade it. Right, they, the rem- they they definitely remade it mid two thousands because I can remember when that happened, and that's such a that the original is such a weird movie to me anyway because it's one of those things where it was like it was such a big deal because of the premise, and then it just never like when you watch it, it's like oh this is kind of like nothing kind of happens. Yeah, <laughs> and this movie is like oh the same I mean same with like a really taut beginning. Mm-hmm. I remember when we rented it. In like third, fourth grade, fifth mm-hmm. grade, uh, we started it and then had to pause it because we were too tense. <laughs> and uh, so it's so it's has a great opening sequence, like the original film, like Scream, you know. Yeah. And then it pivots to a hard, like very much uh, in it, that time period is about take back the night. Um, female empowerment, anti-rape culture of the early 90s. And you just don't think it's going to go there. And it's interesting to look back on and what they're trying to say and then how they infuse it with thriller elements. Um, But the important thing is I watched When a Stranger Calls Back and then immediately watched the version on with riff tracks. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) I did it back to back, which is a real... That was a lot. That was a yeah, lot. That's a lot of, but you got the. That's time. a lot of strangers and a lot of calls. You get that's a yeah. That's a lot of checking the children. <laughs> yeah. um, that's all I remember. Did you check the children? Right. Uh, so so those are two that I've watched the most, uh, um, along with you know Tuca and Birdie. I'd say. Yeah. Uh, that's been a constant uh, kind of background. Sc- uh, kind of scrolling behind me while I do things. Great. And I'd, both worth a check out. Okay. Various reasons. What's your first one, Ted? Well, um, so one of the things, you know, so, you know, what are we looking for when we're in quarantine? We're looking for, sometimes we're looking for some comfort food, some things that, you know, kind of experiences that kind of put us in in a good place, uh, whether it's escapist or, you know, in some cases it can be things that are, you know, things that are more reflective of what we're actually dealing with, but with, you know, perhaps some hope attached to them. But, um so I, you know, one uh, film series that I like to go back to is uh, Whit Stillman's uh, first three films, his his trilogy, which I don't think has a proper name. Is it the Preppy Trilogy or I don't know what? But um, <laughs> East Coast Wasps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but um, interestingly, over I've watched, uh, yeah, I've I've seen Metropolitan, which is uh, the first film, several times, and we've screened it here. Um, we actually screened it here recently, and he showed up, right? Yeah. And he just like wandered into the room, What's right? Up, <laughs> we didn't. I didn't. I, I was really disappointed to hear that because I would have loved to have met him. Um, but you know, one of the first. Uh, so that was. I didn't rewatch that during quarantine, but my wife did, and I think, and I remember hearing it in the background while I, when I was doing work. So I kind of experienced 
re-experience Metropolitan, which again, I've seen many times. Um, and then one of the first films that I did watch is the last film in the trilogy, which is The Last Days of Disco, uh, which is, I think, the first thing we watched on uh, Peacock, uh, the new <laughs> the new universal streaming uh, service, which is okay. I mean, it's, you know, for Was a certain- Was it a universal release? Uh, it is, uh, I'm not sure. Maybe. It might be like a, it might be like a, a, whatever the precursor to Focus Features was, yeah, I was thinking, which I'm was forgetting. Yeah, Art House then? Yeah, because that's the, oh God, and I've done this in class before, where you track the, how you get to, to Focus Features. But anyway, um, so there's, uh, or it actually could be a Miramax film. Um, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's at the, I mean, it's late 90s. Um, and that's great. And that actually, um, among the benefits of watching that, which I would recommend, um, is the soundtrack is just fantastic. I mean, it's actually, it's not, there's some familiar disco songs, but there are some less overplayed ones um, that are just, that are just really strong. Um, but the one I that, that I, being a good uh, CD soundtrack. You remember that you remember that that CD. Yeah, that yeah, was a good yeah, CD. Yeah, soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, so the one that I tend to, but I've seen, and, and that's again, that's one that I've that I did revisit a few years ago. But the one that I that I tend to overlook because it was the one that I didn't really feel that great about the first time I saw it was Barcelona. So um, I'm here to kind of uh, revisit Barcelona and to uh, rethink my initial response to it um, because I think it's really great. Um, and it's actually a film that becomes uh, more relevant uh, as a film. So it's a, so the premise is you've got um, uh, these two guys in living in Barcelona in the, um, I think it's, you know, this is one where it's present day. Um, interestingly, they try to link the characters in all three films, even though the, in the last days of disco, the period is you know, like 20 years before. Um, yeah. The, are they the, the same characters or are they the Yeah. Parents? Well, they have, they just, you have momentary, like you have, um, you have, you know, uh, Taylor Nichols, who's the lead in this, he, he plays two different versions of the characters that he had played in the earlier in the two earlier films in the trilogy. So okay, so they they're not up. Cloud Atlasing. Yeah, they're just they're they're making references to those characters as if they kind of all exist within the same timeline. So Last Days of Disco just kind of says forget it. The fact that you know when you saw those films that they were set in the early nineties, uh-huh. these are going to be you know <laughs> okay. these are going to be more. Um, I like that. Yeah, um, but um, but you can also see in Barcelona. So you know it's these two Americans who are living in in Barcelona. Uh, Chris Eigeman, who's kind of a staple of of Whit Stillman's films and, and kind of that early 90s snarky, preppy guy um, who I actually find really hilarious. I think he's... <laughs> oh, man, it's hard for me. It is hard for me. I think he's great. That Chandler energy? Yeah, yeah. He kind of works okay. uh, in, from my perspective. But um, so he's, a, he's actually a military guy who, they keep, who keeps getting a hard time because he's, you know, he walks around in his, in his um, you know, uniform and uh, he's perceived as kind of the ugly American, and that's a lot of their dialogue is about like why do they think we're so horrible? And he and he acts, you know, in and as they go through, you kind of see, you know, that he does act like the ugly American, but <laughs> but you know they're they're sort of they're trying to come to terms with it. But um, it's just an interesting film to look at now because you, you know it's America, it's about Americans living abroad, and um, you know at a point when this would be a very hard lifestyle to maintain in part because of, you know, just the practical side of it with, you know, the implications of COVID, but also um, just the, the American reputation, which in this film, it suggests that there's a kind of turning against um, Americans. Now it's become, you know, now that's become something much more uh, uh, significant when you go abroad. Um, I assume, but we're we're not allowed to go abroad, so we don't we don't really know for sure. No idea. Um, but uh, but I just you know I found it. I found, you know the script's great as 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 I find them to be in all of his films, all of those early films. I'm not as big a fan of his more recent. Stuff. Do they talk a lot? Very talky, <laughs> very talky, very you know. Uh, Marissa Tomei plays a Spaniard, which is a little little rough. Uh, mm. but, uh, but it's also got some of the things in the other, that they show up in the other films, like, you know, they hang out at a disco a lot and there's just a genuine appreciation for kind of disco culture, um, in a way that's not, you know, it's just, it's affectionate. It's not, it doesn't kind of sneer at that, 
It's something that in another context would be seen as silly. Mm -hmm. So I thought it held up really well. Nice. You know, when you put Barcelona in your list in the email, um, another repeated viewing is that Montserrat Caballé, Freddie Mercury song Barcelona. Oh, I don't know that one. <laughs> it's a so it's a song. Is it one of his they, solo songs? They they recorded it together as kind of a like Olympic bid thing okay. for Barcelona. Um and she recently passed away and I love that video. I was like, is that? And I was like, oh no. That's no, not what I was talking about. Scratch is the uh, Eurovision itch, I would think. Um it would it would fit very neatly within that operatic niche yeah. of Eurovision. Yeah. But you tend to see more like Eastern Europe do rather than Spain mm-hmm. um, or the UK. But anyway, I, I, I just the first time I read it, I was like, oh yeah, this song's great. <laughs> I downloaded <laughs> it again. That's great. But um, so of the three, quick, how would you rank? How, how would you how would rank, rank your top them? three? Yeah. Well, it's ooh, good question. I don't know that this is necessarily the, in order of great, but if the first one that I w- if I were to go back and say, okay, I'm going to watch one of them again, mm-hmm. I would go to, I would go, I would go to Last Days of Disco first, and then then I would probably do Barcelona second because I just feel like I haven't seen it as much in Metropolitan just mm-hmm. because of familiarity. I would put it third. Um, so do but a, that doesn't necessarily reverse mean, chronology, yeah, which might be actual like. Narrative in terms of timeline, it could be it yeah. could, because because there is something you know there's something about Barcelona. I mean, even though it's supposed to be set present day, there's something that suggests that it's um, that it's that it's it's uh, that old world. Yeah, element. yeah, yeah. And he's a, you know he's working for um, I forget what the company is, but there's um, anyway there's just suggestions about kind of the changes in culture and in Spain at the time that suggest something earlier. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I'm not really doing a very good job of ranking them, but those are just like, if I were to, in, in terms of my own watch interest, I think they're all solid. I think it's, you know, I don't think, you know, I, I don't want to choose, I don't want to pick my children. Oh, <laughs> Here you go. All right, Ricky, what's next up for you? Uh, so next up, I'm doing a film, I'm plucking out a film from a genre I watched a lot of. This is one of those, who knows why in April and May. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really got into like uh the later French neo noir mm-hmm. and I think I, I I don't know when exactly that ends that period. Um I don't think it would naturally extend to 2000, but this is a film from 2000 and it's uh Claude Chabrol's uh Nightcap is the English title Merci pour le chocolat. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks Pretty for the good. chocolate. I, I can I can do cognates pretty well with <laughs> with French. Uh, well, actually, I should say one funny thing that was happening. You know, when you're in a foreign country or where there's a foreign language about, and if you're there long enough, you can kind of trick yourself into thinking you can speak it just because you can hear people say like hello and goodbye and thank you, and you're like, oh, I understand it now. Mm-hmm. That kind of happened to me with these French films, even though I can understand nothing. And one reason I was into it is because it made me put down my phone and text and actually, like, watch the screen so I could read the subtitles. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, so it's from 2000. So it's, to- it's definitely toward the end of the Chabrol-Isabelle-Huppert uh, relationship, mm-hmm. um, on-screen, like, collaboration period um and it is to further the different names it's based on this 1940s um story by uh, american writer her name was something um something armstrong sorry okay um but that's called uh the the chocolate spider web or no wait the chocolate cobweb which is great I think that's Charlotte really... Arms, Charlotte Armstrong, the, the chocolate cobweb. Ah, uh, there you go. Yeah, okay. there you go. You know it? No, I'm just looking it up. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I'm using my I'm using my phone this time. To hey, there you up. go. Yeah, the chocolate cobweb, and Isabel Huppert in that situation is the spider. Um, and there are two storylines that collide, like a lot of noir. And first storyline, there is a world class pianist whose name is Andre Polonsky, mm-hmm. which is a plot point. 
So Polanski, uh, he is married to uh, Mika, who is a uh, a chocolate baroness. <laughs> She's a chocolatier, <laughs> but she owns like a large corporate. She has a lot of money, right? They're married. The pianist Andre leaves her for Lisbeth. They have a child together. Lisbeth dies in a car accident, and then the pianist remarries Mika. Uh, the chocolatier. Okay. So that's kind of plot line one. Plot line two is a very talented pianist who's studying, uh, learns whose last name is Paulette, learns that Andre Polanski is playing a concert and is reading in the paper and talks to her mom. And her mom's like, oh, that was such a, I can't talk about it. I can't talk about it. <laughs> and this says and gives a history that uh, Guillaume uh, was born, the pianist's son was born the same time as uh, this pianist's daughter, Jean, and their last name is Paulette, and that there was a potential switch at birth. Um, and there's a lot of confusion there. So, wondering. I mean, if this guy's a world-class pianist, the Jean is like, I'm really good at piano. Maybe this was a switch at birth. So she goes and meets her um, potential father, this Andre, and they get a relationship around a tutelage, around the piano. And there, things start to, this young pianist starts to realize that maybe Mika, uh, the chocolatier, is up to no good. And it unfolds really nicely. Um, part of it is um, someone is drugging people to make them sluggish. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of like, oh, I don't have energy because I just drank hot chocolate, which kind of like <laughs> tracked where I was in April. <laughs> like, I'm just like yeah. having really, really heavy foods and then getting sleepy. Um, and so there was kind of that food porn element to it, even mm -hmm. though I knew it was poisoned. <laughs> I wanted that hot chocolate. Uh, but it was, it's just, it unfolds really well. And it's nice because you have people who are stuck in situations they can't, they, situations they feel like they should be get out, be able to get out of, but they are stuck. And I think that was a lot that if I'm, if I'm going to try and make a connection back to COVID. I think that's what was active there. It was like the, ugh, man, this seems like something I should be able to get out of, but I can't, and so I'm here just drinking really heavy liquids <laughs> <laughs> around my house. And it's just, it's like a lot of Chabrol's films. It has, it just seems like there are weird, like, jokes and like throwaway ideas and he seems to be having a very good time with the playfulness of the script here. So worth a, worth a watch. And I believe it was either a canopy or a criterion watch. I can't remember. Sorry, but it's all right. It's uh, streaming online. Um, the, uh, I have to confess, I've never seen a Chabrol film. Um, I've, you know, it's just somebody who I'm trying, I was trying to think of why I probably overlooked him in my own kind of history of film viewing. Um, and part of it is because, you know, his his films don't necessarily get screened in academic settings as much because he's just so he's just got he's got a particular niche and he's part of the new wave, but he's overlooked. He's overshadowed rather. Right. Um, by Even Truffaut though he's really popular and, within. Right. Right. Um, no, I mean, I think groups. he's I mean, he'd be interesting to to dig more into. In fact, the only time I think even in terms of uh, retrospective film programming, He's only come up more in relation to Uper than on his own. So if there's yeah. a retrospective of her, then his films kind of work their way into it. Whereas that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas I mean, I'm sure there have been retrospectives of um, uh, of Chabrol's work, uh, but I've just I've just never come across them in my own kind of experience. And then, but the other thing that just made me think about, like you know, what I've probably been missing, and this this film sounds great, and I'd love to watch it. Um, is that, you know, when I was first, you know, discovering international cinema, it was kind of at this point when a lot of French films that I was watching at the time were kind of this super low-key noir 
kind of thing. So I think about like Patrice Leconte, um, mm-hmm. who did uh, Monsieur Ire, um, which was kind of like a, a film of it, you know, it, it was kind of the, you know, art house film of its moment. And it's not a film that people really talk about much anymore, but it's kind of got that um, sim- similar kind of vibe that you're, this of this kind of loginess from the <laughs> from the food that that kind of comes through um but you know i see you see there's other directors as well like i mean a little bit of like lauren Cante's work and um that that definitely owe you know a debt of gratitude to to chabral mm-hmm. in terms of what he did so well a lot of people have probably seen swimming pool the ozon film oh yeah yeah well and Oz- yeah ozon would seem to have a big a big connection to it yeah and it, there seems to be a lot of similarities but I'll just end with this, y'all. If you want Isabel Huppert playing a clippy, really rich Swiss chocolatier who's going to get what she wants. <laughs> this is the film. You drink your chocolate. Yeah. Here's your chocolate. Thank you. Drink also, it. sadly, I think it comes out at a point when the uh, the less, <laughs> the, the more, the more, um, mainstream or, or sort of the more critically acclaimed maybe maybe not really critically acclaimed uh, uh lassie hallstrom chocolat, chocolat comes out <laughs> yeah yeah it probably it, well remember we we had films that get buried because they're too similar yeah that yeah. could be the confluence of titles actually i bet that's why because those are chocolat is well 2000. it's 2001 no it's 2000 it is 2000 yeah. it's opposite gladiator yeah um but uh, that's, I think, why it probably got the name Nightcap. Oh, to, to distinguish it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't, I, I completely, you know, this is, I don't, I don't know how I, I just missed this at the time. Because yeah. this would have been when I was watching a lot. Well, they should have called it The Chocolate Cobweb because that's a great title. <laughs> <laughs> Love that title. That's great. What's your second movie? Second on my list. Um, so one of my, I, I would, you know, and this is going to sound like a, I'm a corporate shill, but um, one of my more pleasant discoveries has been HBO Max. Um, I find it to be just a really fascinating collection. And I also like the sort of randomness of its curation. So, you know, you sort of go through a list of films and you might see like, you know, a Leo Carax film next to, you know, uh, Elmo. I mean, it's just like there's. If you go, yeah. th- you have to go through the search list to kind of see how this. It's the joy of that little HBO guide that you would get in the hotel. That's right. That's only right. now it's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now it's on your screen. Um, so they've got so uh, HBO Max, uh, which is HBO's new streaming service, has um, a partnership with. Uh, well, I guess it's through t- through TCM rather than the Criterion Collection. So it's kind of doing what Filmstruck was was maybe intended to do, um, although a lot of that's been absorbed by the Criterion channel. Um, so it's just, you know, along with all of the HBO content that you could ever possibly want, and then, you know, some new um, original content or stuff that they've picked up, um, you know, internationally, uh, recommend the series frayed which is an australian series that just popped up on there um but uh among the so among the so i went through when we first set up hbo max and tried to find you know my goal was to just watch everything the criterion channel can almost be too overwhelming because it's it's collection is so deep that i i find myself searching without stopping it's also Um, everything is like i don't know it's 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 borderline like opening. This is gonna sound lame, but like a Bible where or something where it's just like everything feels so important. Right. Exactly. It's so th- like, so there's uh, no. Yeah. I need my eyes to like be able to go right. to an Elmo for a minute <laughs> and not just <laughs> to, like, to recognize some variation. Right. And exactly. not to feel bad that I'm not yeah. watching a Bergman film. Sorry, Elmo and Grudgeland. <laughs> you've become <laughs> you've become the constant. <laughs> you need you need water between lily pads. You know. <laughs> so, um, but uh, and and Canopy is actually good about this. This is where Canopy can be useful. Is that you have kind of a slice of the Criterion collection that's not. <laughs> quite so uh, quite so vast got some dead weight in there <laughs> <laughs> yeah but but my goal was to go through any of the criterion films that i hadn't seen before um and and kind of fill in the gaps in you know, one of my you know trying to fill in as many gaps that i have in my own kind of viewing history and one area where i found that i have some pretty significant gaps is in uh the horror genre um and where i interestingly where i found myself gravitating i don't know if it's because of you know 
you know, uh, viruses doing their business on people yes. is I got really into body horror <laughs> over the last <laughs> couple of months. I've watched a, a lot of things that have uh, that I would just watch kind of late at night when no when nobody else in my house was up, and they'd say, "What you watch?" They're like, "Oh, you guys don't want to watch that because it's just, <laughs> it's just too gross." Um, so a really fascinating one is, um, I don't have the year. I think it's 70, 79, 79, mm-hmm. uh, David Cronenberg's the brood, uh, which is, you know, so in David, and I realized that I've seen a lot in David Cronenberg, of course, has throughout his career has a lot of, you know, representations of body horror within his, within his films. Um, this one is, uh, so how do I describe it? You enter into a kind of lair that's run by this freaky psychiatrist played by Oliver Reed, who's doing some sort of weird uh, hypnotherapy with people that's causing, that allows them to, um, you know, I don't know if it's, it's not um, telekinesis, but it's, but it allows them to sort of uh, project out beyond uh, their physical body. And in some cases it it results in, you know, sores and other kind of lesions uh, appearing on people's bodies. Um, so you have that as kind of the framing that we're in this world that where you've got this creepy guy who's, who's, uh, causing these reactions in people through his, through his therapy practice. And within that, uh, we discover that there's a woman who's been, uh, kind of, uh, uh, staying with, uh, Reed, who's the wife or the estranged wife of a man. And I forget the character names, um, who are kind of in a in a weird custody battle <laughs> over their daughter who mm-hmm. is living part-time in this um in this guy's uh uh complex. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's basically Same Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah, and some yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's 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 it is a weird inverse to Kramer versus Kramer circa 79. Um so it, yeah, it is it's it's a bizarre divorce drama that ultimately uh plays itself out into um, this uh, strange kind of world of horror where we discover, is it, should I reveal things or should I not reveal things? I don't know. Um, we discover that, that there are, there are a, there is a, um, an army of uh, evil alien children, or not alien, uh, evil children uh, who are uh, wreaking havoc in um, the lives of these characters. <laughs> so, but it all it all makes sense, everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So they're just—I assume they're in Montreal because it's Cronenberg, and these these weird little kids are running around, you know, killing people. And um, and we discover, and, and the body horror aspect is that we discover that when we discover the source of uh, these children, it of course ties back to a very Cronenbergian image. Um, of how that plays out, but it was really fascinating. Um, and, uh, you know, pretty straightforward in terms of the sort of storytelling aspect. Um, the effects hold up surprisingly well, mm-hmm. um, given that it's, it's the late seventies. Um, well, practical effects just have us, I mean, I mean, we've talked about this yeah. a lot and particularly when you're dealing body with that body horror. Yeah. Like, oof. Well, and it's also kind of the Hitchcockian, uh, you know, you, re- you 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 limit exposure to these things until you absolutely have to reveal them. Although he goes well beyond that because you have a climax where you kind of see everything all at once in terms right. of, you know, the, the, the these you know, mutant children and, and um, their bizarre fascination for human flesh. Um, so... Uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. And, um, yeah, I mean, just along the line, you know, some of the other things along those lines, I watched, I rewatched the, um, remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, I watched The Thing for the first time. So, um, lots of things dealing with kind Invisible of... Invisible menaces. Yes. Things yeah. that seem, um, what I, like sterile on the outside can actually be carrying... Yeah, I mean... Something pre- dangerous. Yeah, it's, um... There was some pretty uh, oh sisters was another one which I had never I mm. never actually I've never seen that sisters you know sisters fits in with a lot of this because you've got some interesting um, scarring and stuff <laughs> that plays into the narrative mm-hmm. but uh, yeah it was a lot of fun it was it was a lot of fun and um, I don't know if I've quite reached my threshold yet on body horror I think I'll keep going for a bit but it's it's that's been helping me to get through. I haven't done. I did watch Hellraiser. I've never seen Hellraiser. I've never seen Hellraiser. That's and I watched that, and I was like, "Ugh, that's yeah. about enough of that." Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And then, oh, I did watch, uh, I'm thinking now I watched another, well, Cronenberg's within Canucksploitation, I suppose, right? Kind of on the, yeah, I mean, he's Kinda. sort of the more, I mean, he's the more, he's the more legit filmmaker that, you know, I think makes, makes it possible. Right. Uh, but I saw The Turbo Kid, which actually isn't Canadian, is it? But has that, has that look. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that was my one. My one kind of move into that world. Okay, and but you've but you've known. I mean, you've watched a lot of that stuff over the years. I mean, you've you've yeah. You Cronenberg is well. one of those few directors where I've seen everything. Okay, because it's just one where you just keep up with you them. watch it enough of it in high school. Yeah, and there's something very like white and dudeish about it. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I've seen all the Coen Brothers movies by the time I'm 16. Now when a new one comes out, I have to see it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have dragged myself in some case, like the what disturbing, uh, most disturbing method. What was the? Oh, God, I forgot that one. Yeah, some of those. Existens? Was that it? Was that Which it? is great. Existens is great? Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. That was. I just remembered that showing at a theater where I was working. Yeah, that was one that would show up on the, like, DirecTV, and you'd be like, oh, that title. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, check that one out. That's a fun watch. Um, What would be the, outside of this, what would be your, like, normal, like, if someone's like, oh, my favorite Cronenberg movie, what would be yours? What would be mine? Um, Maybe The Dead Zone. Which previously discussed. Yeah. Yeah. On top which three. I which I went back to because of that discussion, and it's so much fun. It mm-hmm. is just, I mean, the walk-in performance is just fantastic, and um, and then you know, and then the the suggestion of uh, fascism emerging in the U.S. was a little <laughs> timely um, with our friend Martin Sheen, um, you know, our friend friend of the university, um, and frequent U.S. president. <laughs> there you go. He, he that role suits him much mm-hmm. better in the West Wing than it does in uh, the Dead Zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's much nicer. Um, what's your what's your, what's your last pick? So my last pick, I I realize I'm really sampling from the beginning of uh, Isolation, but my first or my last one is the first movie that all of my friends and I watched together alone. And texted during it. Mm -hmm. And it was such a great experience. It was a ton of fun. And that movie is Ma from 2019. I feel like it should be called like Octavia Spencer's Ma. Just so there's (laughs) something more there. Um, And this was a movie that like when we first saw the trailer, like, oh, we're going to go, we're going to go, we're going to go. And then we never did, and we never did, and we never did. And then... And the reviews were not good. Very, I think it's 55% on Rotten Tomatoes, which isn't fresh. Like, (laughs) you'd think the cutoff would be 50, but... uh, The... So, finally, with COVID, we're like, oh, we got nothing else to do. You know, it's at 9 p.m., hit, like play like go to a minute 13 and hit play so we're all watching it together mm-hmm. which never really works despite you know the efforts and then people's whatsapps can lag or whatever but it was a very you know the same excitement that you get from you know watching thrillers in big groups not the same but like being able to text and reference things that are happening was a lot of fun mm-hmm. and i did have some quotes about it um uh it said quote the film toys with very real traumas and avoids every event to engage with them in the end what fun there is to be had is shallow and I'm sorry, I'll read that more time. In the end, what fun there is to be had is shallow. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> <laughs> I want some very real dramas yeah. dealt with at a super shallow, superficial <laughs> level. Uh, you know, like low stakes on big, you know, big dramas, low stakes. And mm-hmm. that's awesome. Um, also, uh, Ma is the most strikingly conflicted Hollywood movie of the season. <laughs> 
great to like try and hash out over text. And lastly, I think this is Rexa Reed. Uh, During every savage attack, the audience laughed uproariously. Is this what we've come to? Rex asked rhetorically. Uh, And again, like that's what you want. You want a thriller that laughs. And this movie is uh, Taylor directed it, who did The Help. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Never saw The Help. So this is that Allison Janney, Octavia Spencer. The Help is we, the help would be a good uh, COVID film because it's if you want to talk about, like, supposedly serious drama, that's really pretty low stakes. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know. It's actually, you know, it's kind of like, it's just, you know, it's got some good little set pieces and good little moments. Okay. You know, they kind of, kind of that would actually play out pretty well. Well, that kind of fits Ma. Yeah. But I like I like the genre is just more, better, and people aren't coming and saying like, "Oh, Ma needs to be nominated for Best Picture." Well, I think <laughs> they were trying. You know, they were trying to market it as if it's a Jordan Peele movie, so which suggest you know, which suggests that it's supposed to be something more substantive. When in fact, it's actually just it's a horror comedy, right? Or or maybe is the comedy in, in, intentional, or is that just no? Of- it's it's part. I mean, it's part of there. They yeah. get it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and it's that maybe um, they should have played that up. Yeah, and it's uh, Blumhouse or whatever. Okay. Um, I can never remember Bloom or Blumhouse. I would say Bloom, but I don't know. If I'm yeah, I, I'm bad about that's – that's the coin like flip Susan where Bloom. I always settle on the wrong end of things. Um, but anyway, uh, so they know what they're doing, yeah. you know. Yeah. They know. And that's, and that's great. And just briefly, so Ma is about um, – Someone of Octavia Spencer's age, so, you know, like mid-40s or so, and has a small-town element where there has been some high school trauma in the small town, and the cast of characters hasn't moved on necessarily. Mm-hmm. And Sue Ann, also known as Ma, played by Octavia Spencer, is the target of this trauma. And... Serves that revenge super cold <laughs> to the well, some of the aggressors, but their children as the well. The children of her high school, of yeah. her high school uh, cohort. Great. I want to call them friends. Yeah, <laughs> and when they're and when you have that kind of like psychic drama playing out so far down the road, mm-hmm. a I I love it because it is like. You know, high school has some really deep stains for some people, and it's a way of, you know, bringing that up in a way that is so funhouse mirrored that you are able to laugh at it and think about, like, oh, yeah, they are. I mean, it's it, it plays onto itself, right? Things that seem like they are huge stakes that are actually very low, but for some people remain that level. Um, some quick highlights. I'll, I mean, you'll read what Ma's about, but um, Ma's hairstyle and styling <laughs> is great. Uh, for those of you who saw Little Joe and that heavy orange page boy bob, <laughs> Ma is giving you that um, kind of like mushroom haircut. Yeah. And there's uh, some Munchausen by proxy, and there's just a lot of. <laughs> There are two or three movies, and one of which could easily be rewritten into a like very like heavy, satisfying drama. So they mixed it all together. It is uneven, and it is a lot of fun to watch with friends. Okay. So it's a good time. And then I will pair it um, with another movie that I had seen previously, but not since high school, called Slaughter High, mm-hmm. which is about a boy being pranked by his high school classmates and becoming disfigured, and then them coming back for an ersatz um, reunion and then being you know murdered in a slasher style. But I... Would people watch, Ma, watch Slaughter High and look at the different... Like, like it's it's that '80s pranking. You see mm-hmm. some of it in Greece too. Yeah, yeah. Which is so vicious. <laughs> like, well, I think these I, are horrible, horrible things yeah. that they are doing. I would attribute it to um, the impact of Carrie, probably. Where you know, Carrie, Carrie has just such a. And Carrie is. I mean, it's not that Carrie is the biggest movie ever, but for anybody who sees it, 
it's it touches such nerves about about bullying and 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 the liter and the and then the physical pranking that goes along with it. You know, you get what's what's a worse prank than getting a bucket of pig's blood dumped over your head? Getting a bucket of nitric acid dumped on you. <laughs> but that sets the you know what I mean? Like that that is I think the starting point where yeah. you know that become that informs a lot well, of those. And just kinds I of films. I I am always amazed when I hear stories from my siblings of pranks that were pulled in the 80s, yeah, things that people used to do to each other in school in the 70s and 60s. And I'm sure if students today were to hear, you know, my stories from uh, late 90s in high school, they'd be like, oh, your school was a war zone. Yeah. And so it's a reminder that the brutalism of high school is omnipresent, even if it is bending toward less severe in some ways. Well, or, you know, and, and you know, it, for people living through it, it seems more severe because they say cyber culture is, you know, so inescapable. That, right. You know, at least, you know, you could go home yeah. and, and just hide. I shouldn't say less severe. Yeah, it's just a different, I mean, it but, takes different form. Yeah, but it, but it is, but I think, you know, from a, from a contemporary lens, those things seem, you know, they seem, they seem unthinkable now. They seem like, you know, you know, actual crimes uh-huh. where people would be prosecuted. Uh, one last note. So the the villain in it, no spoilers, is named Marty. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tagline, one of many taglines, was Marty majored in cutting classmates. <laughs> <laughs> Which fits my, I mean. <laughs> Are they trying to build off of the, six, the uh, actually I wouldn't even call success of cutting class? Is that the, is oh, that the, <laughs> yeah. the reference? Which I've never seen. Me neither. Um, but it, uh, but yeah, uh, the, I was in one other point. The director uh, went on to make Waking Ned Divine. Oh, wow. You know? <laughs> That's weird. a weird one. I did, <laughs> I did, um, have you ever seen, I started to watch um, Class of 84. Yeah. Um, which I haven't made it all the way through, which isn't, you know, which isn't what I thought it was going to be because I think, it, you know, I've, I've only watched about the first half hour of it. Um, but I was expecting it to be more of a horror movie, and it's really more of a. It's kind of in that weird, like if you talk about vengeance, it's 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 kind of in that you know sort of brutal early eighties um, and Canadian too. I think uh, kind of revenge, you know, revenge films. Um, but uh, but just an interesting kind of connection to all of this. Mm-hmm. So those are your two. If you were, because you can't be in person and witness yeah. kids be horrible to one another. <laughs> if you're missing, yeah, missing what it's like to get everybody in, in a room you can together. Catch it through those movies. Great. And what's your last? So my last, last one? one is a film that. So it's a the film I'm going to talk about. Uh, the last film I'm going to talk about is a film that um, I probably had plenty of access to. Uh, when I was younger, because I, I see I can remember this film being advertised in the 1980s on probably on HBO, uh, you know, because I, I can remember a lot of the, the the flow of the trailer for this that they would use that, you know, in how you see in seeing those scenes in the film. Uh, but but I had never watched it at the time. And it's as a I, young child, you had no problem. Seeking out Neil Simon joints. That's right. That's right. Well, this well, this also doesn't play that. You know, I did have this thing with Neil Simon movies that um, my mom and I used to go see them. But um, so this is um, uh, the Lonely Guy, which is a film that came out in at the be- in early 1984. Um, and I note that because it's a Steve Martin movie, and it's the same year he did um, All of Me, which would have been his more kind of commercial and critical um, success that year. Um, this was a film that kind of came and went um, and didn't, and reviews were pretty, um, not very good. <laughs> they were pretty dismal, uh, in part because it's a film about kind of a sad sack character um, who's desperately trying to find um, love in New York City. So Steve Martin, he plays a a, a, a greeting card writer, <laughs> which is, just seems like that's a job you would have in the 80s that you wouldn't necessarily be able to well, make a living off of now. That's such a rom-com job. <laughs> right, exactly. Is that like a sleepless in Seattle? Something. There's another job where, or you've got mail. Someone has that job. Yeah, somebody, somebody's writing writing greeting cards. So he writes greeting cards, and I, I, he actually, you know, he's because he's so sad, his greeting cards are starting to get, uh, they're starting to go downhill 
And so he um, he discovers that he is, in fact, um, this rare breed of character called lo- a lonely guy uh, in New York. And they have their own. It's almost like a secret club of kind of sad sack characters. And it becomes evident when he strikes up a friendship with the one and only Charles Grodin. Oh, um, there, so, we, there so th- it is. Well, and that was definitely, you know, seeing this. Well, so here's why I watched it. It was Charles Grodin was the, you know, was the was the first kind of draws to try to fill in my gaps on films of his that I hadn't seen. Um, but also this was another one where it showed up in the HBO max listings and it <laughs> seemed like, why would they bring this back of all of the other films that they could bring back? And probably because they have the rights to it. And it doesn't cost them much or yeah, whatever, but that's a bundle buy. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a, it, there's your block booking. Um, but the, but you know, I was just curious in, in, so I started to, watch it to see if it had anything to it and i totally got into it um it's it's got elements of kind of the more absurdist comedy that steve martin kind of moves into not not his early 80s stuff because you have his early 80s kind of wacky comedies like the jerk i was gonna say is it the jerk it's not that it's not the jerk it's not the man with two brains it's more of kind of these uh where he gets into these flights of fancy with like what he does in la story kind of comes to mind Mm-hmm. Where you have, you know, kind of a realistic, you know, romantic setting that suddenly turns fantastic uh, in one in some way or another. Um, so, for example, like there's a point where, you know, he shows up at a restaurant and uh, it's, you know, the restaurant's bustling. And then he he asks, he, he tells the maitre to table for one and everybody stops in the restaurant and sort of watches him as he goes to his table. And then they put like a big spotlight on him. And it, there's all these kind of exaggerated um, elements to it, but um, but that seems to be kind of more um, in line with what kind of we see later on. So it's more playful for Neil Simon, for sure. So yeah, so that so it's a Neil Simon. Neil Simon's adapting, I believe, a book. Oh, I thought so he wrote not, it. Yeah, okay. yeah, no. So he, it's not an original Neil Simon. I think he he's writing. Uh, he's he worked on the script. Um, I don't, I don't have the full story on it, but there was an actual, there was, there was a, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the other guy's name. Um, but anyway, there was a story about, you know, these kinds of, you know, lonely characters in New York. Um, and so he meets, uh, uh, he meets a woman played by Judith Ivy. Um, and, uh, she is, uh, she's a recent divorcee and she kind of, she's the one who kind of tells him what it means to be a lonely guy because she was married to one. And um, uh, she kind of knows the knows the drill, and they keep having these. Uh, they keep failing to connect with each other. She keeps trying to give him his phone number, give give him her phone number, and he keeps losing it under you know sort of silly comical situations. Um, but uh, uh, it's um, you know, they, but eventually you know, of course, they get together. But it's got a it's got a darker tone to it. Um, because there is this element of the lonely guys when they, you know, they can't find love, they jump off, uh, the Manhattan bridge. Um, and so they have this very kind of artificial set piece of the Manhattan bridge. (laughs) Um, but you know, the thing, you know, going back to, you know, my initial interest in it, which is Charles Grodin, there are just these great scenes of the two of them sitting. I, I assume it's, it's either Central Park or Washington Square Park, um, just sitting on a park bench talking to each other and they're clearly improvising, um, and there's just kind of a nice kind of looseness to it. Um, so the the folks who had worked on it, um, so it's it's Ed Weinberger, um, who I believe he did he write the book that it, this was based on. I'm not sure, but he was he did a lot. Of, he worked on Mary Tyler Moore uh, among other things. So it's it's a lot of people coming from uh, t- a TV background, um, TV situation. Coming. So it's not ugly '80s New York. Um, it's a little bit because it's, it's early eighties. Um, so things are, it's not quite as, it, I mean, there's definitely a kind of, uh, there's elements of danger, but it's not, but, but it's, you know, as, as, as the yuppies are starting to kind of take over. Yeah. So you definitely. Those fat cats writing greeting cards. That's right. That's right. That's a, that's a way to make, or just or that, working as, I, what, another one I watched, um, is, uh. Uh, after hours, which does not, which I didn't think held up very well. Yeah, um, I was actually really eager to see if there was anything there, and it just didn't really do it for me. But Griffin Dunn plays a word processor in that, you know. So he's it's the idea like that you know desktop you, publisher. Yeah, well, you're like yeah. What does it mean to be a word processor? You go you you basically go into a, an anonymous office where everybody's sitting, you know, 
maybe in cubicles or but definitely in in open seating plans yeah. and you just sit at a computer all day just doing mindless that work. was my my mindless computer job 80s movie was jumping jack flash Oh really? Yeah, which <laughs> is a lot of fun to yeah. watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, those, those. I mean, and those were. I can. I mean, when I was younger, I, I, I can see those things as kind of like, even though those were like, you know, kind of schnook jobs. Uh, you know, the just like the jobs that just like any old anybody could do. There was something kind of appealing about like, well, you're living in the city, and you're, you know, you're getting, you know, you're part of this this lively place that, um, that seems very attractive, even if your job kind of, you know, is is forgettable. And it's proto internet. It's whoopee talking to banks. Right, right. Well, yeah. And, and computers just, you know, even the most rudimentary aspects of computers being something that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. When you fix them, you still hit them. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, there's something very, me- like, heavily mechanical about yeah. them. But, um, but I would say, you know, the, I think the humor in it lands really well. I was watching it with my daughter, who's, you know, she's kind of, she's really interested in, in a lot of alternative comedy, and she kind of she kind of got the the absurdist. She kind of, she kind of dug the absurdist elements of it. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say give it a, give it a chance. Nice. All right. Well, um, those were six plus <laughs> things that we watched, and we yeah, of, just with, with a drop in the t- bucket. Right. Exactly. Oh, exactly. We've got much longer lists, so maybe uh, maybe next time we'll keep going, but. Um, uh, or hopefully uh, be able to start bringing guests back. We'll figure. We'll see if we can figure out a way to do that. But uh, we appreciate your sticking with us through our long hiatus, COVID-induced hiatus, and uh, we hope to uh, keep keep the uh, podcast going for the next few months at a safe distance. That's all.